And now let's go ahead and take out our Bibles. Please open them to Acts chapter 7. I'm so thankful for our impact uh, preaching team that uh, preached God's word for us during the month of February. Uh, what a blessing it was to have Adam and Frank and Caesar and Alan lead us in that study. Uh, and so I am very grateful to be able to be back with you in the pulpit. Uh, and I thank you for that time that you gave me in February uh, to work on Alan's biography. I look forward to getting that published here in the next few months. Uh, as you're turning there in Acts chapter 7, I want you to think about a question that is asked of historians every few years in our nation. Every few years, a survey is taken of historians in America asking them the question, who was the greatest president of all time? The greatest president in the history of the United States. And guess who almost always comes in at the very top of the list? You probably guessed it. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln almost always is voted by historians as being the greatest president in the history of our nation. As much as the Civil War tore our country apart, it really could have been much, much worse if we hadn't had such a strong, godly leader in the White House. Abraham Lincoln was a very effective and successful president, and we would tend to think that his success as president was the culmination of a very successful career. But if you study the life of Abraham Lincoln, you discover quite the opposite. Surprisingly, Abraham Lincoln had almost no formal schooling. And at the age of 22, he went into business but failed. A year later, he ran for Illinois General Assembly and he lost. He then applied to law school, but he was laughed out of the room because he had almost no formal schooling. They thought he was nuts for applying for law school. Well, he started another business which failed and led him to file for bankruptcy. He spent the next 17 years paying off his debt. In 1843, he ran for Congress and lost. In 1854, he ran for the U.S. Senate and lost. In 1856, he sought the vice presidential nomination at his party's national convention, but he got blown out of the water. And in 1858, he ran for the U.S. Senate and he lost again. So there in 1858, if you had predicted that Abraham Lincoln in two years would not only go on to become the next president of the United States, but would also become the most effective, greatest president of the United States, people would have thought you were nuts. You're not rowing with both oars in the water. With the water? <laughs> You're not rowing with both oars in the water. You're a taco shy of a combo plate. They would have thought you were insane. There is no way that Abraham Lincoln could be elected president. No way that he could become the greatest of all time. It just couldn't happen. And in the year following Jesus' ascension into heaven, people would have said much the same thing about a young man named Saul. If you had told the people of Jerusalem that the young, hot-headed Pharisee known as Saul was going to become a Christian, they would have called you delusional. And if you had gone on to tell them that not only would he become a Christian, but he would go on to write almost half the books of the New Testament and become the most influential Christian in the history of Christianity, they would have thought you were crazy. Not a chance. Not Saul. No way. No how. They would have thought you were a lunatic if you had made that prediction. Well, this morning, I'm really excited to launch our brand new study 
of the life of Paul. Over the next few months, we'll open God's word together and examine the life of the man who was quite possibly the greatest Christian leader who has ever lived. I want you to think about it. When the Christian church was still in its infancy, he planted churches in over a dozen cities on two different continents. And of the 27 books in the New Testament, he wrote 13 of them, including the Magna Carta of the New Testament, the book of Romans. He wrote that Peter, James and John were all great apostles, but the apostle Paul overshadowed them all, even though he was in his early years, the most unlikely man on the planet to become a Christian. So I'm calling today's message the first in this Life of Paul series Paul B.C., the most unlikely Christian. So I hope you're there in your Bibles in Acts chapter 7. In just a few moments, we'll begin in verse 51. But let me kind of set the backdrop for you. In the early years of Acts, in the early years of Christianity, most of those Christians were in Jerusalem, especially in the early months of that first year. Uh, There were Christians, a few of them outside of Jerusalem, because on the very first day of the church, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were baptized, and a number of those went back to their hometowns and told people about Jesus. But as the months went on in that first year of Christianity, most Christians on the planet were still there in Jerusalem. And a lot happens in those early years that we read about in the first six or seven chapters of the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 6, in those early verses of that chapter, we read about a significant event in that early Jerusalem church. Uh, We find out that there in that first year after the Christian church was born, most Christians on the planet were being ministered to there in Jerusalem, like I said, but they were being ministered to by the 12 apostles. And there got to be too many Christians. The apostles couldn't do all the work of ministry themselves. And so they're early in chapter six. They select seven godly men who they designate to become deacons in the church. These godly men were wise. It says they were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and they could be entrusted to oversee the church's ministry, particularly the church's ministry to widows. One of these deacons was named Stephen. According to Acts chapter six, verse five, he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. According to verse 8 of Acts 6, he was a man full of God's grace and power. And he did, it says, great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Unfortunately, many of the Jews didn't like Stephen very much. They didn't like him preaching so boldly about Jesus. They didn't like him upstaging them by doing all these miracles. And so many Jews wanted to get rid of Stephen. They hated the guy's guts. And so we read in verse 11 there in Acts chapter 6, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. Of course, these words weren't true. They pulled him out of thin air. They just wanted to drum up some false accusations so they could drag him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and have him convicted, hopefully killed, but at least imprisoned. Well, one thing led to another. They end up seizing Stephen. They force him to stand before the Jewish high council, that Sanhedrin. And chapter 7 records Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. Interestingly, it's not much of a defense. 
Stephen just takes the opportunity to preach a really good sermon. He takes them back to Father Abraham and and gives them in a a quick synopsis the history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament and how God had moved and worked through his people of Israel. He gives this powerful sermon. And as he gets to the end of that sermon, we're going to pick up here in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 51, as Stephen is bringing his sermon to a close as he's standing before the Sanhedrin. He says, You stiff-necked people (laughs) with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Uh, You can tell he wasn't exactly a bashful preacher, this Stephen. But that's what he says. He goes on to say, You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Now, when they in the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at Stephen. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Before I move on to verse 57, notice the position of Jesus. We know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, Scripture says that he was sitting at the right hand of God. But in this moment, Jesus stands up to welcome home who's going to be the man who's going to become the very first Christian martyr. Well, picking up in verse 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at Stephen. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged all men and women off and put them in prison. May God bless us as we study his word over the next few minutes together. Well, this passage we just read records the execution of the very first Christian martyr. Stephen was the first Christian to be killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. Long before any of the twelve apostles uh, were killed for their faith, Stephen was put to death. And it wasn't even a legal execution. The Romans, remember, had taken away Jewish authority to carry out capital punishment on any fellow Jews. They didn't have that authority. That's why when Jesus was arrested, the Jewish leaders had to take them before Governor Pilate because they couldn't crucify him without Roman permission. And so what's happening here is basically a backyard lynching. The Sanhedrin and the mob, they had no authority to execute Stephen, but they did it anyway. They took him out to a back alley. They picked up rocks and they threw him at his head until he bled out and died. Here, the Jewish Sanhedrin doesn't seek Roman permission to kill Stephen. They simply 
threw him to the crowd. They threw him to the mob and let them have their way with Stephen as they stood back and cheered them on. And who was it who was standing there as the number one cheerleader for this mob that killed Stephen? Well, verse 58, it was a young man named Saul. Now, Saul is the Hebrew name of the man we know as Paul. So Saul, Paul, in the book of Acts, it's the same man. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the Greek name. Same guy. And so there he is. The witnesses, it says, put their cloaks or their coats at his feet. Now, who are the witnesses? Those that were the ones that came forward and accused Stephen of doing things they knew full well he hadn't done. And according to Old Testament law, if you were a witness in a capital offense and the person was found guilty and was going to be stoned to death, it was the witnesses who were responsible to pick up the rocks and be the first to throw them at that guy's head. Because you know what? That's going to verify you're telling the truth if you're going to be responsible for picking up the rocks and actually killing the guy. But these guys were so wicked, so depraved, they didn't care that they had lied and they were still throwing rocks at his head. So here these witnesses were, those that were going to be the first to pick up the rocks and stone Stephen. They laid their cloaks at Saul's feet. Evidently, uh, there were some pickpockets in the crowd and they didn't want their cloaks stolen. So there had to be someone watching them. And Saul says, I'll happily do it. And I'm going to cheer you on as you stone Stephen to death. The first time we read about Paul in the Bible, isn't it remarkable? He's not sharing the gospel. He's not talking about how great Jesus is. He's not even in a synagogue. The first time we hear of Paul in the New Testament, he's there giving his applause to those who are murdering the first Christian martyr. And in case there's any doubt in our minds about whether or not Paul approved of this lynching, we're told very plainly in the first verse of chapter eight, Saul was there giving approval to his death. He was saying, I support Stephen's arrest. I support the witnesses trumped up charges against him. I support the verdict of the kangaroo court. And I fully support what those men did to that no good piece of filth when they cracked his skull open and let him die in the street. I support it 100%. Look with me at how verse 1 is translated in a few different Bible translations. First of all, the English Standard Version says it this way. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. How about the Holman Christian Standard Version? It says it this way. Saul agreed with putting him to death. How about the Living Bible? It goes on to say, Paul was in complete agreement with the killing of Stephen. And then the message, more times than not, the message gives us a, a paraphrase. It says it this way. Saul was right there congratulating the killers. The great Apostle Paul. This is how we're introduced to him. He's a murderer. He's cheering him on. He's supporting him. He doesn't stand up for Stephen. He doesn't say, wait a minute, these charges were bogus. He's right there supporting the whole thing. He, must have, he might as well have picked up the rocks himself and thrown them at Stephen. Stephen's blood splattered on the ground next to Saul's feet. And he developed from this point forward a thirst for Christian blood. Because look at what we read in verse 3. Saul began to destroy the church. Now, this word destroy is very significant in the original Greek. This word destroy is a translation of a Greek word that was used to describe a wild animal mangling its prey. 
So Saul was like a bloodthirsty wolf who wanted to mangle Christians. The English Standard Version, the Holman Christian Standard, both translate this part of the verse this way. Saul was ravaging the church. He was ravaging the church. And and look at how it's said in the Living Bible. The Living Bible says Paul was like a wild man going everywhere to devastate believers. Well, he's going from house to house. He's dragging off men and women and putting them in prison because of their Roman occupiers. The Jewish Sanhedrin was limited in what they could do to apprehend and punish these Christians. But Saul wasn't technically a member of the Sanhedrin. He wasn't a part of the the 70. We're going to find out later that he was closely connected with the Sanhedrin, but he wasn't part of them technically. So he was able to do what they weren't able to do legally. He was their bulldog. He, he was their uh, mob hitman. He was the guy that could do the dirty work for them. The Sanhedrin wanted the Christians in town to shut up. Saul wanted them to shut up even more. The Sanhedrin wanted Christian men to be arrested, but Saul wasn't satisfied with just arresting men, so he arrested women too. The Sanhedrin wanted the Christian ringleaders dead. Saul wanted them dead even more. The Sanhedrin hated Christians, but make no mistake about it, Saul hated Christians even more. And we ask the question, why? Why did he hate Christians so much? Well, Saul hated Christians with a passion because from the bottom of his heart, Saul hated Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. Saul hated Jesus Christ. He hated Jesus so much that he set out on a mission to eradicate the name of Jesus, not only from the lips of Christians in Jerusalem, but from the lips of Christians around the world. So who was this wild man, Saul? And why did he hate Jesus and his followers so much? Well, let's take a closer look at what Paul himself reveals as he gives a bit of an autobiography later in the book of Acts and later in his epistles in the New Testament. In the book of Acts and in the epistles, Paul paints for us a pretty clear picture of who he was B.C., who he was before he accepted Christ, who he was before he became the world's most unlikely Christian convert. Paul offers us a a quick autobiography in Acts chapter 22, verse three. He says this. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. In the next chapter, in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, Paul reveals that he was a Pharisee and his dad was also a Pharisee. Remember, the Pharisees were the Jewish legalists. They believed in obeying every single one of God's Old Testament laws. And just to make sure they did, they believed in obeying hundreds of extra laws that were added to the Old Testament. They obeyed all these thousands of laws. Philippians chapter three, verses five and six. Paul says a little bit more about his uh, in his autobiography. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness. I was 
faultless. He goes on to say in Galatians chapter one, verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. When we piece together these verses of Paul's autobiography and and combine them with what we're told elsewhere in Scripture about Phariseeism and about the Sanhedrin and about Gamaliel, well, we can paint a pretty accurate portrait of young Saul. You see, Saul was born in this town of Tarsus. Tarsus was about 400 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you were to follow that coast of the Mediterranean Sea up around the corner into modern day Turkey, that's where you would find Tarsus, about 11 miles or so inland uh, from the port city uh, there at the Mediterranean Sea. He grew up in Tarsus. It was an important town in Paul's day. It was a cosmopolitan, uh, multi-ethnic town with a lot of Greek and Roman culture worked into it. That's where he was born. But more important to his parents than being Roman citizens was the fact that they were members of the community of Israel. They were Jews through and through. Paul's parents were Roman citizens, yes, but more important to them was the fact that they were Jewish. And so when Jew was uh, when uh, Paul was still uh, just a young boy, his parents decided to move to Jerusalem. And so they moved to Jerusalem. After all, they were Pharisees. They were these strict legalists. And so they didn't want their young boy uh, growing up in this pagan town of Tarsus, uh, possibly being influenced and tainted uh, by all the Greeks and the Romans and the non-Jews that lived in town. They wanted him to grow up in the heart of Judaism. And so they took him to Jerusalem when he was probably just three or four years old. And they taught him the word of God. They taught him the Old Testament from a very young age. Uh, You see, these Pharisees, they did believe in all 39 books of the Old Testament, unlike the Sadducees. And so you better believe that Paul's mom and dad taught him the word of God. And so they they taught him the word of God by the age of 13. Paul would have mastered Jewish history. He would have mastered the Psalms and the Old Testament prophets. And he was an intelligent young man, as we can see from him being able to write 13 books of the New Testament later in life. He was so intelligent that he had probably committed much of the Old Testament to memory by the time he became 13 years of age. Sometime after his 13th birthday, most likely while he was still a teenager, Saul began to be mentored by one of the most respected Jewish rabbis of that time, a man by the name of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee who was part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, part of that Supreme Court of Israel. Gamaliel was the grandson of the most famous Jewish scholar of the first century B.C. That scholar we know today as Hillel. Well, Hillel's grandson was Gamaliel, who was there on the Sanhedrin in Paul's day. Like his grandfather, Gamaliel knew the Hebrew scriptures like the back of his hand, and he was a wise and level-headed leader in the Sanhedrin. If you were to flip back a few chapters to Acts chapter 5, beginning in verses 33 and 34, you can read one of Gamaliel's speeches before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Several weeks before Stephen was arrested and put to death, the apostle James and John had been arrested by the Sanhedrin. In fact, they had been arrested twice. 
And they were brought before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin in no uncertain terms said to Peter and John, stop preaching in the streets in the name of Jesus. I want you to shut up about Jesus. And remember, Peter so boldly said, judge for yourselves whether it is right before God to obey him or you. No, we're going to keep obeying, obeying God instead of obeying man. And so that's what what Peter had said before the Sanhedrin and Gamaliel so wisely stood up at that point that the Sanhedrin was furious and wanted to stone Peter and John to death. He stood up and said this in Acts four, starting in verse 38, he said, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if Peter and John's purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel may have single-handedly saved Peter and John's lives. Cooler heads prevailed that day. The rest of the Sanhedrin took his advice. They chose to flog Peter and John and then release them. So where was Saul during Gamaliel's great speech there in Acts chapter 4? Well, as a student of Gamaliel, he was probably right there in the gallery listening to every word that his rabbi was saying. Saul probably overheard every word Gamaliel said in that speech. And based on how Saul responds to Stephen's murder just a few weeks later, I'm pretty sure I know what Saul was thinking when his mentor Gamaliel was giving his speech. Uh, Saul was probably thinking something like this. The old man is getting soft. I'm very thankful. Don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for what he's taught me. But he's dead wrong on this one. We can't afford to tiptoe around these Jesus followers and treat them with kid gloves. We have to nip this Jesus cult in the bud. We need to wipe out its leaders and we have no time to lose. I'm pretty confident that's what was going through Saul's head. He had been trained and mentored by Gamaliel. But there's a shift that takes place where it seems like at this point in time, he came out from underneath the tutelage of Gamaliel and rolled up his sleeves and said, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. You see, it was just a few weeks later on Stephen's uh, right after Stephen's sermon that that blood of Stephen splattered the ground next to where Saul was standing and guarding the coats of the murderers, regardless of whether or not Gamaliel approved Saul wasn't going to follow in his footsteps anymore. He was ready to man up and do what Gamaliel didn't seem to have the guts to do, to stamp out Christianity once and for all. No matter what Gamaliel or Nicodemus or his parents or anyone else said, Saul was going to do everything within his power to wipe out every last Christian on earth. He would either force them to deny and blaspheme Jesus' name, or he would throw them into prison. And if they wouldn't let up, He'd cover the streets with their blood. That was his mission. That was his purpose. This is the man of God who God chose to plant churches throughout Europe and Asia. This is the man God chose to become the most influential Christian who ever lived. No one in his right mind would have ever guessed it. I'd like to share with you three life lessons that we can pull from this study of the early years of Paul. Three lessons that we can learn from Paul, B.C. Life lesson number one. Even the greatest Christians 
have a dark side. We all have checkered paths. It's true, isn't it? We all have a dark side. We all have dark checkered paths. I have it. You have it. Everyone around us has a, a dark side and a checkered past. David, the man after God's own heart. Think about David. He was an adulterer and a murderer. How about Abraham, the great man of faith and the friend of God? He told two different kings that his wife was his sister to save his own skin. That's not so great, is it? How about Jesus' apostle Peter? He denied knowing Jesus three times. How about Paul here? He arrested and killed Christians because the bottom line was he hated Jesus. Even the most loving, caring, world-changing Christians have checkered paths. No one is squeaky clean. We all have a dark side to our testimony. Which leads us to life lesson number two. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you strayed, how far you strayed from God, there is hope for you in Christ. If you'll let Him, God will save you. Do you believe that? It's true. Most of you have heard me say it before, and I hope that it rings like a broken record in your ears. God's grace is greater than my disgrace. God's grace is greater than my disgrace. Say it with me. God's grace is greater than my disgrace. It's true. The most loved, most sung Christian song of the past 200 years has certainly been the song Amazing Grace. And some of you may have never heard the story of how that hymn came about. In the late 1700s, a man by the name of John Newton was doing one of the most heinous things that any human being could ever do. John Newton had a slave ship that he was taking down to Africa. He was kidnapping Africans, shoving them into the hull of his ship and taking them back and selling them into the slave trade in England. And he did this trip after trip until finally he gave his life to Christ and became so convicted by what he had been doing. He quit the slave trade. And years later, penned those words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now am found, was blind, but now I see. He looked back on his life as a slave ship captain. And for the rest of his life, bearing that guilt and that shame of what he had done, was never ceasing to be amazed by the grace of Almighty God through Christ. That was greater than his disgrace. And some believe that that tune that those words to amazing grace was put to was the tune that he heard those African slaves singing in the hull of his ship as he took that trip from Africa to England years earlier. That melody haunted him and he worked it into this beautiful hymn that has ministered to hundreds of millions in the last 200 years. God's grace 
is greater than our disgrace. Over the years, I've thought many times if God could forgive a man like John Newton, then he can certainly forgive me. And I say the same to you today. If God can forgive and save a man like John Newton, then certainly he can save you as well. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed from God, there is hope for you in Christ. If you'll let him, God will save you. And finally, life lesson number three. God doesn't just save hell-bent sinners. He recruits them to change the world. It is so important that you take to heart this life lesson. I don't want you to miss it. First of all, I want you to see how it applies to you. Even after you're saved, even after you're saved, Satan is very good at whispering things in your ear. He's very good at whispering in your ear, you're a loser. You're a nobody. You don't belong at church. You don't fit in. You're a hypocrite. You can't serve. You can't lead anyone to Christ. You're useless. You know I'm telling the truth, don't you? Satan is very good at whispering in our ears even after we're saved. And that's when Jesus Christ calls you and me to take a stand and say, get behind me, Satan. Go to hell. Say, well, my mom taught me to never say go to hell. Well, you say it to Satan. It's okay. I'm giving you permission. You tell Satan to get behind you. You tell him to get lost, to go to where he belongs, to the pit of hell, because the truth is I used to be a loser, but Jesus Christ has made me a winner. Amen. I used to be a nobody, but Jesus has made me a somebody. I used to be a a reject, but now I've got a church family that loves me. I belong here, and now I can serve. I can lead my friends and family to Christ, and I am useful. Jesus Christ has filled my life with purpose, and I can, and I will do great things for Him, not because I'm great, but because the Savior within me is great. And I take to the bank His words, His promise that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? I can do all things through him. Oh, I was a loser. I was a nobody. I was a reject. But Jesus Christ has made me someone because of his grace and his mercy on me. Oh, listen. Listen. I don't want you to miss what I'm about to say. This third lesson here doesn't just apply to you. But it applies to those around you, especially those who are the least likely on the planet to ever get saved and ever be used by God to change the world. This lesson here, God doesn't just save hell-bent sinners. He recruits them to change the world. This lesson applies to your brother or sister who hasn't gone to church in 10 years. It applies to your son or daughter who told you a few months back, I don't believe in God anymore. It applies to your niece and nephew who are strung out on drugs. Who knows where? You don't even know where they are. But they're out on the streets somewhere strung out on drugs. This lesson applies to them as well. It applies to your uncle in prison. It applies to your neighbor down the street who's one of the most wicked men you've ever met. It applies to Snoop Dogg. It applies to Bill Maher. It applies to Joe Biden. It applies to Donald Trump. And yes, it even applies to Vladimir Putin. This 
life lesson applies to anyone and everyone. Christians, don't stop praying for those that you know who are the least likely to ever get saved and the least likely to ever be used by God to change the world because those are the very ones that God will save and recruit to change this world for Jesus Christ. You see, God did it 2,000 years ago with a Jesus-hating murderer named Saul, and he still does it today. Let's pray. God, I thank you that years ago, you took hold of the heart of a man named Abraham Lincoln, who was born in a one-room log cabin, in the outskirts of some podunk town of Kentucky. And you set him apart to be used by you to lead our country through the most difficult endeavor it ever faced. Thank you, Lord, for using Abraham Lincoln. Thank you, Lord, for taking hold of the heart of that murderous slave trader, John Newton, and saving him. And using him to pen a hymn that has blessed hundreds of millions over the last 200 years. Thank you, Lord, for taking the heart and using the heart of John Newton. Thank you, Lord, for taking hold of the heart of Paul, who hated you. But despite the fact that he hated you, you came to him, you revealed yourself to him, and you gave him an opportunity to be saved, and you used him to change the world. And thank you, Lord, for what you are doing in us. We don't deserve our salvation, but you gave it to us anyway. Thank you. And help us to, in faith, believe what most people refuse to believe. That the worst of sinners around us, the most wicked men, the most rebellious women, can be saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. Because your grace is greater than their disgrace. And not only can you save them, you can use them to turn around and save many others. You can use them to change this world for Jesus Christ. Increase our faith, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe that you still do today in lives what you did in the life of Saul 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Lord, for this great man of faith and what you did bringing him from where he was into the man he became. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for diving into God's Word with us today. God did it for Paul. He can do it for you. God did it for Paul. He can do it for those around us. Believe it. Pray for it. And work together with him. To lead the least likely sinners, I should say the least likely Christians, into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God bless you as you serve our Lord today.